0: Thank you very much, Matt, and thank you all for coming out. Good evening. Welcome to our first OI Centennial Year Members Lecture. Um, My name is York Rowan. Uh, I'm an archaeologist. I've been an archaeologist in Israel for over 30 years, and thus it's my honor to introduce our speaker this evening, Professor Ayelet Gilboa, head of the Zinman Institute of Archaeology at the University of Haifa. Professor Gilboa's accomplishments from publications to field work are so extensive that I could deliver a lecture of my own based on her 60-page CV as a resource. However, rather than consume her lecture time, I will only highlight a few aspects of her career and research. Professor Gilboa received her PhD or Masters and Bachelors degrees from the Institute of Archaeology at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Before becoming head of the Zinman Institute of Archaeology at Haifa, she was chair of the department between 2007 and 2009. She's received many grants, awards, and prizes, supervised over 25 graduate student theses, presented at more than 50 international conferences, and published three edited volumes, with another soon to appear. Her publication record is even more impressive, uh, with 44 journal articles and several more in press, 14 book chapters, and too many other publications in conference proceedings, encyclopedias, and museum volumes to even begin to enumerate. Professor Gilboa co-directs the Tel Dor excavation and publication project in Israel. The latest publication on Dor, titled Excavations at Dor, Final Report, Area G, the Late Bronze and Iron Ages, appeared just last year. With her students, she is currently publishing the legacy site of Shikmona, excavated in the 1970s. Shikmona was a fortified production site for purple dye and weaving textiles, the only one known from biblical times two other large Phoenician projects follow her long-term research interests sourcing different materials using chemical and isotopic techniques, particularly silver and ivory in the Bronze and Iron Ages. In addition, she has a large petrographic project on Phoenician ceramics, which attempts to trace specific commercial spheres and symbolic properties. And I'm sure we'll hear more about some of these uh, research trends this evening. So I've only given you the briefest of summaries of Professor Gilboa's dynamic career as an archeologist, but feel confident that we will learn more about her research in her lecture, The Rise and Fall of Ancient Israel and Other Problematic Entities in Archaeological Perspective. So with that, let me welcome Professor at Gilboa.
1: Okay, thank you, York. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm very grateful uh, to the Institute for inviting me to Chicago, this really wonderful uh, city. I have many things to say, uh, but I was asked to uh, uh, concentrate on early Israel, so this is what I'll do, and I hope I'll get to the other problematic uh, entities, but I'll see. I don't think you want to stay here too long, so I'll... Uh, try not to extend the lecture between the 50, uh, beyond the fifty minutes I'm, I have been allotted, uh, so uh, let us start um, The first question to be asked when you 're uh, tackling a, a topic like ancient Israel is uh, from an uh, archaeological uh, perspective is what is actually archaeologist 's role? In this uh, in this question, because as you know, the question of ancient Israel can be tackled from historical perspectives, from biblical perspectives, and for many years, uh, my profession, meaning dealing with the history, archaeology, uh, his of the archaeological point of uh, Israel history in uh, in this period, was uh, tagged as uh, biblical archaeology. We were all considered biblical archaeologists. And I must say that for many years, biblical archaeology had a very bad reputation uh, uh, globally. You know, this uh, uh, vision of an archaeologist working with the Bible in one hand and with the uh, archaeological tools in the other was very romantic, but it was to a certain uh, degree very unprofessional. Uh, archaeology was perceive, perceived and actually practiced. As uh, you know, the maiden of uh, uh, history, it was seen as a discipline actually illustrating the Bible. Uh, and archaeologists, to a large large extent, really succumbed to the uh, uh, historical uh, uh, perspective or to the perceived uh, historical pers- perspective that the Bible uh, was providing. So this is a very good example. For instance, this is an artist. That uh, uh, depicted was uh, intended to depict uh, Solomon or David, maybe it's David, uh, looking from his palace uh, on the city of David. But the archeo- archaeological elements he used to uh, depict uh, David's palace. Are uh, real archaeological, uh, real archi- uh, architectural elements, but taken from a much later period, from the ninth century BC, from Israel, and not from Judah. And actually, I was uh, w- when I uh, put the slide on, I forgot that the actual only capital ever found that really uh, showed that those uh, this sort of capital, these sorts of capital, was decorated is just displayed here in the Oriental uh, Institute's. Uh, Uh, museum. So this is the way people thought of biblical archaeology, let's say, in the first half of the 20th century, and even later as a discipline uh, illustrating the Bible. Things have changed still uh, 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 from that period. Mainly, I think, uh, archaeology worldwide, not only the archaeology practiced in Israel, uh, has matured and has become a discipline on, uh, on its own right. But still there are lingering questions of how archeology span of the periods, I'm going to talk uh, about what we call archeologically the Bronze and Iron Ages. Uh, what is our conceptual uh, framework? Is it related at all to the Bible? Are we biblical archaeologists? Are we archaeologists of Palestine or the Southern Levant, as people like to call it, because that's the most neutral term we can use regarding uh, our region. region. So what what are we actually doing? Can we actually do archaeologists of these periods? Uh, without thinking of the Bible, without using uh, the Bible, my question would be, yes, this is maybe what we should be doing, but I don't think any of us can do archaeology of the spirits, you know, uh, distracting, extracting what we know from the Bible. So the Bible is always there, even if we're trying to do totally neutral archaeology. Um, And the next question is, How do we, I mean, assuming that we cannot forget about the Bible, that we cannot ignore other uh, written sources regarding the period, how should we go about archaeology of this period? Do we do what I always claim, uh, uh, try to do neutral archaeology first, and then only after we've uh, reached our conclusions based on uh, archaeological tools, look up and say, okay, let's see now, does it fit? What uh, the Bible says, does it contradict? Uh, can the two be combined? Which actually, what has priority? The text or, or the archeological evidence? Uh, this question is not only asked vis-a-vis the Bible, but also in relation to other uh, written records, and we'll be speaking uh, as, uh, on a part of these. What is our responsibility? as archaeologists, and especially us, what I call dirt archaeologists, archaeologists who are actually excavating and are immersed in the uh, um, uh, material cultures, cultures of the sites we're excavating. And then on top of everything is maybe the uh, uh, main disciplinary uh, conundrum in archaeology, the relation between the material culture we are excavating and the big questions of ethnicity of identity is this is ethnicity for instance something that we can deduce from the material culture imagine you know your various communities in chicago would uh, archeologists in the future be able to tell different communities apart only uh, by considering the daily objects they will find eventually in their houses Will there be anywhere close uh, uh, to the mark? So these are the more general conceptual uh, um, uh, questions we should uh, consider before we come. Uh, Something happened here, but never mind. You can see the title. The real title is uh, up there. So this is going to be uh, the uh, topic of uh, my lecture. You can see the general Uh, uh, time uh, uh, frame, Uh, but before we do that, we have to understand, and this will take a few minutes, the background, what happens in the region where uh, I am considering before the 12th to 9th century, and I'm taking you back uh, to the time of the Canaanites, uh, the late Bronze Age in archeological parlance, um because there's no way we can understand what was going uh in the iron age the main period we we're going to talk about without consider what happened before uh, so a very quick uh detour to canaan uh towards uh the end of the canaanite area the, as you can see the 14th to 13th century bc this is a period that is very well known mainly because uh, the Levant in this uh, region, wait a minute, let me try to use that. Here, Uh, was uh, divided between two major powers, the Hittite empires here in Anatolia, and more important to our uh, uh, subject today, the Egyptian empire, as, as you can see, the brown area ruled, Uh, the area that is today Israel, Canaan Canaan of the 14th and 13th century uh, BC. And because those two empires were interested uh, in Canaan, uh, there are uh, many written records about uh, this period. Some of them, as you can see, uh, uh, were found in Egypt. Others were found in other regions, like in Ugarit, a very famous... A Syrian town. So we know a lot about late Bronze Age uh, uh, Canaan. Uh, and again, especially from the Egyptians because the Egyptians ruled this area for hundreds of years. By the way, a situation that, that the Bible doesn't know of. The Bible never ever mentions Egyptian rule in Canaan in all the narratives uh, uh, that relate to the period we're discussing uh, today, uh, the Egyptian rule uh, is known from monuments uh, uh, in Egypt itself and from abundant archaeological uh, evidence, like Egyptian administri- administrative sites in Israel. This is one example from the city of Jaffa, today actually within Tel Aviv, a gate of an Egyptian uh, settled uh, uh, fortress. Several actually dozens and dozens of Egyptian monuments scattered uh, throughout uh, uh, throughout Canaan, the Egyptian had held a firm grip on Canaan for several hundred years. Why uh, the reasons are obvious first of all, as you can imagine, all traffic uh, um, Leaving from Egypt northbound to fight the Hittites, to fight other uh, countries in the northern Levant, had to pass through the south Levant, today's Israel. So this was a major uh, thoroughway, And Egypt also depended, always depended, on the uh, agricultural produce of the Mediterranean area. And you have to consider that we, Israel, Canaan were the closest Mediterranean to, uh, uh, closest Mediterranean, Egypt, uh, uh, closest to Egypt. So whatever the Egyptian needed and could not supply for themselves. Uh, Wheat, for instance, barley, uh, uh, especially the Northern Negev today, the closest uh, supplier of these uh, uh, produce uh, was important. And uh, Egypt also needed for uh, everyday life, and I would say also for everyday uh, death, Um, the arborial products from the Mediterranean region, mainly resins because Egypt could not function without resin neither in daily life. As I said, for instance, gluing uh, boards of ships, uh, performing Uh, uh, performing rituals and also embalming. uh, These Mediterranean uh, uh, products were essential for Egyptian and uh, daily life and for Egyptian ritual. Uh, We know a lot about the Canaanites from the archaeological uh, records. We know their sites, the major tell sites of Israel, Lekish, Chatzor, uh, Megiddo we know the temples uh, we know closely the canine ritual by the gods by their uh, shrines most of the examples here are from the site of frazo and Megiddo we know the their gods uh, from archaeological finds and mainly from the various texts uh, that uh, pertain uh, uh, to these spirits these are the and some nice uh, uh, pieces uncovered in recent years uh, in Hazo. We know the popular uh, cult with these figurines of, uh, of, uh, um, there's a big debate whether they actually represent deities or or, or women's. They are found in almost every late Bronze Age tomb uh, uh, in Canaan. Uh, and especially, this period is known—the late Bronze Age, the 14th to uh, the uh, 14th and 13th century—by its extensive commercial uh, context across the Mediterranean. The region of Canaan that we were talking about was part of a very extensive uh, network uh, that uh, exchanged commodities. With, as you can see, Egypt, the Hittite emper- uh, empires, Cyprus as a main supplier, for instance, of copper, which was the o- which was the oil of that type. Copper was the main commodity that the uh, whole Mediterranean was uh, 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 was consuming, and context reaching a- as far as you can see as. Uh, the Aegean, Greece, and the Aegean area, and even uh, uh, indirectly th- uh, to regions further to the south, to central Mediterranean, and even to the Atlantic coast of Africa uh, and, and, and Europe. So a very extensive international Uh, network, and this is why uh, several uh, archaeologists actually think of the Late Bronze Age as the uh, period where actually the concept of globalization can be applied to, where several economies and social systems were were interdependent, at least across the eastern uh, part of the Mediterranean. And this, again, because we had those uh, very elaborate administration Uh, administrations ruling Egypt, the Hittites, and other uh, other political entities. (coughs) There are ample records of this commercial uh, uh, network both as you can see uh, in uh, uh, Egyptian inscription and Egyptian tombs. This is a a depiction of Syrian ships arriving in an Egyptian uh, uh, port. And archeological evidence of these exchanges are endless. I'm just showing you part of the commodities uh, that were exchanged, uh, both uh, luxury items and luxury uh, materials, raw materials like glass. Almost everything was exchanged across the Mediterranean. (coughs) I would... Especially, want to highlight in this, in this respect, uh, that among the uh, commodities exchange, we now know that an extensive part originated originated on a part of our uh, of part of Canaan that I will uh, try to get to by the end of my my lecture, uh, the Carmel coast which is part of the Phoenician sphere that I hope that after finishing with the Israelites and the Philistines will manage to get to it, mainly because uh, my sites are uh, situated on Israel's Carmel coast. (coughs) However, all this very prosperous picture this is what I, I learned when I, I was an undergrad, uh, undergraduate uh, student in Jerusalem, is actually very misleading. Because Canaan, under the uh, uh, Egyptians, was actually a very dilapidated uh, uh, country. All the uh, um, impressive uh, pictures that uh, we saw. The palaces, the sites, the palaces, the art originate actually in very specific sites. You can see maybe the major uh, Late Bronze Age sites in Israel. These, and especially Chatzor and Megiddo in the north, produced most of, most of everything you will usually find in papers, in magazines, everywhere about Late Bronze Age Canaan. The rest of the country was actually demographically very poor. So if you have in your mind you know, the cities that the Israelites conquered when they entered Canaan, like Jericho, uh, for instance, they were all very small sites. Canaan throughout this period was typified by a demographic crisis. Most of the cities were actually not even cities, were very small settlements. Uh, there are areas that were hardly settled, or so almost uh, completely empty. For instance, uh, the central hill country of Israel, all this area here between the Lake of Galilee, the mountainous area between the area, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea was almost empty of, uh, uh, of settlements. The Galilee, oops, this area here, was almost empty of settlements. The desert region of Israel, the Negev, was almost empty. So there were regions that were hardly uh, settled, and even in the more fertile fertile uh, uh, regions, when you compare the situation to previous uh, areas, Canaan, Canaan was not at its best. We also know uh, f- both from written records and uh, archaeological discoveries, that an, a large uh, a large part of the population lived actually outside uh, the urban matrix of Canaan. So there was a large population that was uh, not permanent not permanently settled uh, um, populations of semi nomads that we again know both from the Egyptian records. The Egyptians call them shasu, or apiru, chabiru, a term that, by the uh, way, a few scholars associate to the uh, uh, early Hebrews by the etymology, the sound of the word. We know them archaeologically because we find uh, cemeteries that are not connected to any settlements, because we find. Uh, Temples that are not connected to any settlements, so it is quite clear that within this uh, uh, demographically poor Canaan, there was a significant part of the population that uh, was uh, semi-nomadic, that was not settled, and this is usually the sort of population that archaeology can locate only seldom they are easily located usually in desert areas like this uh, uh, cemetery in Jordan, part of Canaan, but they are definitely uh, less visible to the archae- archaeological radar than you know permanent settlements the regular uh, settlements we usually excavate towards the end of this period uh, this stele, Egyptian stele, was erected, perhaps one of the most important uh, documents regarding the rise of uh, ancient Israel. It was, it's a uh, 13th century uh, stele. And as you can see, it mentions for the first time uh, the name uh, Israel. This is a, actually a record of an Egyptian uh, conquest. In Canaan, you see what are, uh are, uh, the um, Mar Neftach, the pharaoh is reporting. He has conquered Ashkelon. He's conquered Gezer. He's, culting, he's uh, conquered uh, Jen, uh, uh, Yenoam, a city apparently in uh, northern uh, uh, Israel. Israel is laid waste. And Huru Canaan has become a widow. So, a huge uh, conventional uh, victory stele. But for us, of course, the important uh, uh, important issue in this stele, that this is the earliest uh, mention of the name Israel. And uh, as part of this, the uh, earliest external uh, mention of the word Israel. Uh, this is how uh, Israel was written uh, in Egyptian hieroglyphs. Uh, what is even more interesting about this name is that as some of of you may know, uh, Egyptian uh, uh, words uh, were uh, very often preceded by a determinative, meaning an explanation of the uh, category the name belongs to. So if you have, if you write the name Chicago, you will have uh, before Chicago uh, the determinative for a city, so you know that Chicago is a city. Uh, Ashkelon and Gezer, in this uh, inscription, for instance, are uh, preceded by determinatives of city. The name of Israel is not, because the determinative that you can see you can see of a seated man, man and a seated woman describes usually a non-sedentary population. So it's some, maybe a tribe, something that is not urban, that is not settled. So the importance of this uh, stele is that it tells us that the Egyptians in the late 13th century knew of some entity called Israel that was apparently uh, probably a a nomad, or at least not a settled uh, entity. Regretfully, we we have no idea of where this entity of Israel was located somewhere in canaan because as you saw between ashkelon gezer it's somewhere that's it's in the canaan, canaanite context but we this is what uh... we know But let's remember this uh... occurrence somewhere around twelve hundred bc so before our story starts uh... the bronze age uh... economical and political uh... Um, Uh, Mediterranean collapsed. Of course, it didn't happen in one day, but around 1200 BC, this is the picture uh, 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 we get. Uh, The Mycenaean Mycenaean, uh, uh, culture collapsed with most of the site. Uh, The Hittite empire collapsed totally, uh, almost totally, uh, politically. The Egyptians lost their grip Uh, on Canaan and on other uh, uh, areas they were controlling. And uh, many settlements across this entire uh, region were destroyed or abandoned. So this is really uh, uh, an end of an area. The commercial uh, and the very extensive commercial enterprises that I mentioned stopped. So in about in a few dozens of years, all the system just didn't exist anymore. And when we wake up 300 years later, uh, I'm skipping our, our period of interest uh, for a moment. Uh, when we wake up 300 years later, uh, our region, the southern Levant, looks completely different. First of all, it is typified by territorial states. Some would call them national states. I prefer territorial. We will be talking about the rise of uh, the Kingdom of Israel, uh, about the uh, rise of the Kingdom of Judah, but actually in this period. You see uh, uh, kingdoms in the area that is today uh, Jordan, across the Jordan, uh, Ammon and Moab, and Edom uh, uh, rising. The Aramean states in the north. uh, And actually, you can follow the same uh, process around the Mediterranean with the Greek police and city kingdom in Cyprus. The political configuration is totally different. That's the area of, as I said, the territorial states. From this moment and on, on, from the ninth century BC, everything is relatively clear. We know about those territorial states, we know how they were called, we know how they, uh, the names of most of their kings from, from the Bible, but also from non biblical. Records. So from this point, from the ninth century and on, things are relatively easy. Just a few examples. In the famous Moabite stone of uh, the mid ninth century BC, King Omri of Israel is mentioned. So there's, there's a state, or actually let's call it the kingdom, which is a more accurate uh, definition. There's a kingdom named uh, uh, Israel with a king named Omri exactly as we know of the Bible. And as part of this, we know uh, of uh, uh, Yahweh, the God known by uh, Israel's neighbors in the ninth century. There's also a possibility that the house of the name of David is mentioned, but this is debatable, so let's uh, leave this uh, for the time being. Some other uh, uh, examples, again, all in the ninth century. When the Assyrians started to uh, 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 make the first moves to the uh, uh, Near East, a coalition, a Near Eastern coalition was uh, organized. And Ahab, the Israelite, was the second most important force with uh, 2,000 chariots. Again, the most important thing is that uh, there's concrete evidence, uh, both of the kingdom, both regarding the kingdom of Israel and its king. Same period, approximately. Uh, black obelisk, I saw you I just saw there's a copy of uh, of it here uh, uh, in the museum. Uh, Yehu, son of Omri, he was not the son of Omri, but never mind. As you can see, he's seeing succumbing to the Assyrian emperor. So from the ninth century, uh, we have ample evidence both of the uh, uh existence of the kingdom of israel mind you not judah kingdom israel is a more uh, more important uh uh kingdom although you know we from the bible all know especially about judah because the bible was written in judean circles so israel takes in the bible takes a secondary seat but it was actually the more important uh kingdom uh, and one of the most important discoveries of the uh, of uh, the last decades in Israel was the ceramic uh, uh, stele uncovered at Tel Dan, uh, uh, site in the north of Israel, mentioning the House of David. House of David. So, the general, let's say, political of of um, uh, the biblical narrative is. Uh, confirmed by historical uh... by uh... uh, external historical uh... evidence from the ninth century uh... bc and we see the same picture archaeologically from the ninth century bc fortified city Israelite israelite administrative centers uh, fortified with elaborate gates, with water systems, uh, with public facilities for grain storage, as you can see, granaries and building for storage and stables. I mean, from the ninth century, you can actually see and feel the kingdom of Israel. This is a, uh, a storage building that we have excavated during the last season. A uh, door. Really from the 9th century, things are relatively clear. Uh, beyond the public facilities, we also start to have standard buildings. There's a standard Israelite uh, architecture uh, of which the main uh, archi- architectural type is what we call a forum house. Uh, the exact details are not that important, but as you can see, it's uh, uh, typified by the use of those columns, square, many squarish columns. Uh, it's, this, uh, it's so typical, it's used for everything. It's used for uh, domestic units, for industrial units, this four-room uh, concept is the Israelite concept uh, in uh, Israel cities, also uh, adopted later uh, in Judah. And uh, actually it is unknown in this period anywhere outside these two uh, kingdoms. Please remember this four-room house with its columns because we will be uh, getting back uh, uh, to it. From the ninth century, we have evidence of, of literacy and literate administrations with, uh, again, some examples from Tel Rehov in the Jordan Valley uh, of uh, inscriptions that mention, A, mention names that we know from the Bible. Some of you who may know your Bible, uh, who is Nimshi? Does anyone, does the name ring a bell? Uh, Nimshi was the father of Yehu, uh, who was actually the uh, uh, person that terminated the Omri dynasty. So that's a name we know from the Bible. More important is that these in, uh, inscriptions can already be read as Hebrew as opposed to other West Semitic uh, languages. We have taxing uh, documents in Hebrew. Uh, uh, um, Beyond the fact that they are in Hebrew, please have a look at the names. As you can see, the endings of the name, what we call the theophoric endings, endings that are usually uh, 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 shortened version of the name of the main deity, are all as you can see, Gadio, Yedayo, uh, they f- they finish with Yudvav, which is the uh, shortening of again Yahweh. So it's uh, all these people. I mean, we assume that these people are people that actually worship uh, 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 Yahweh. Not all, the, not all of them, by by the way. Some of the Sumerians of this people of the period have names that uh, finish with Baal. The Canaanite Baas, so not all of them apparently were Yahweh worshippers, and from the eighth century and on, this becomes really a flood with uh, um, inscribed uh, objects. Uh, most of them objects that exhibit literacy, like bullae, uh, clay, uh, clay clay ceilings. That are stamped with uh, Hebrew inscriptions, including uh, 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 those of uh, kings that we know from the Bible. This is what just one recent example uh, uncovered in Jerusalem, but there are hundreds uh, of them. Uh, some of them with names. We do uh, specific rule specific kings <coughs> we know from the Bible, but from the. Judahide administration, they are really endless. And again, as you can see, <coughs> they have again, the names, the private names, have theophoric endings like this um, one, Yozni Yahu, ends, ends with Yahu, which again indicates that the person, that the person was a Yahweh uh, worshiper. This is what I like best. The one, the ceilings, not too many that belong uh, uh to women. Madana, Madam Nan, daughter of the king, we don't know her, but she was a daughter of one of the uh Judahite uh king. <coughs> uh, the fact that Yahweh was a. uh Worshipped in both Israel and uh, Judah is also uh, um, exemplified, but either so other sorts of uh, inscriptions. For instance, in this site named Qantilat Judah, as you can see where it is, it's on the border between the Negev and Sinai. Today, it's it's uh, within uh, Egyptian territory. Again, there's a fortress there. I will not. Uh, talk about it other than uh, showing you that uh, in some of its inscriptions Yahweh is mentioned in a strange way. There's Yahweh of Samaria as you can see in English and in Hebrew. There's a Yahweh of Teiman, Yahweh of the south. So there was a Yahweh, but there were apparently several Yahwehs, but this is, again, not a problem I will uh, uh, consider today. So to sum up, from the ninth century and into the 8th, after which, as some of you know, the kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians, and then Judah was destroyed by the Babylonians. From the ninth century on and on, we clearly see a major... Israelite Kingdom and a minor Judite Kingdom. Uh, There are kingdoms, they have all the uh, 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 material uh, um, signs of kingdom, they have literate administrations, they have administrative facilities, Uh, their uh, their administrations are literal and at least let us say, I don't know, am not sure how I should say this, but at least the royal houses and the elites, the ones that are writing, are worshipping Yahweh. But my question today is what happens in between? How did we get from this late Bronze Age Canaanite collapse around 1200 to the 9th century? What happens in between? What happens in between is much more problematic because A, we hardly have, or maybe that's the main, the main problem, is that after the Late Bronze Age collapse with the collapse of the administration, the uh, 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 Hittite administrations uh, administration in, in many Canaanite cities, there are hardly any uh, written records left for the entire period between 1200 and 900 BC, we have very few uh, 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 documents, and the narratives that some of you, you know are uh, for the rise uh, of Israel uh, are based on the biblical uh, description. And again, a problem I cannot delve into today. But as some of you may know, the for the last two decades, the uh, very uh, Uh, fierce debate about the historicity of the Bible. Can we actually, should we uh, uh, take the so-called historical parts of uh, uh, the Bible, like judges and king uh, at face value? Is this history, were these books meant to be historical books, or are they literally religious some would say propagandistic uh, books. This is, again, a debate that we need to remember at the background, but there's no way I will enter it today. And this is, as most of you know, the biblical uh, uh, narrative regarding early Israel. You know, uh, uh, slaves in Egypt, sojourn 40 uh, 40 years in the desert, entering Canaan, there are several versions from the south, from the east, but basically the idea is that a foreign entity enters Canaan, conquers the Canaanite cities, although even in the Bible there are some discrepancy and even the Bible describes, as you know, in the book of Judges some coexistence between the Israelites uh, and the Canaanites, but basically Israel is a foreign element uh in Canaan. Regarding the Philistines, there's a very similar uh, concept among historical and archaeologists, not based on the Bible uh, 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 this time, but based on uh, uh inscriptions and um artistic depictions, relief found in a temple in Egypt, the mortuary temple of Ramses the third. You can see this is around the A year 1200s, and both inscriptions and uh, uh, reliefs depict uh, Egypt battling uh, a group of enemy enemies that archaeology has called Sea People, uh, including several groups. One of them is the Palashtu, which unequivocally are to be. uh, uh, equated with the biblical uh, uh, Philistines. So for both these groups, the usual uh, scholarly interpretation till recently was of groups entering Canaan from outside. Regarding the Phoenicians, my third entity, I'm not showing you anything because hardly anything exists. Uh, Maybe one document that may relate to Phoenicia in this time. I'm not sure I'll have time to mention it, but really hardly anything uh, is written in ancient uh, records. Uh, the, the Philistines, for instance, as you can see, uh, they are very evocative uh, reliefs because you can see with the Egyptians, the ones uh, are fighting the Philistines, those with the, so feathered, uh, uh uh feathered crowns or whatever, as you can see, they are accompanied by civilian population. It's not a regular combat uh scene. So you have as you see uh women and children and they're accompanied uh uh by uh their livestock. This is really unusual and enforced the uh, uh scholarly interpretation of really a civilian population uh, coming, attacking Egypt um, and the Near East, and this uh, generated what I call the D-Day uh, scenario—a bit uh, exaggerated in the slide. Were, but this is again the scholarly view that was dominant and may perhaps even is still adhered to uh, by some scholars. Uh, whereby groups of sea people, among them the uh, Philistines, are attacking uh, the coast of the Levant, settling on the coast of the Levant, uh, while in the north, uh, today's Lebanon, what people call Phoenicia, nothing happens, everything uh, is quiet and life, life goes on. Again, I will get back to this picture later on. So this is basically—it's a bit of a, an ex- exaggeration and schematization of the scholarly opinions prevailing till very uh, uh, recently. Uh, and now I would like to uh, uh, check what uh, archaeology, what the facts in the ground actually are. And I would would like to start with the region, with the uh, hilly region uh, of Israel. Uh, the area that eventually this, re- this region, the Galilee, I'm not t- talking about Transjordan today, but ab- about the Galilee and the central hill country uh, of Israel, which were eventually uh, the core areas in which the kingdoms of both uh, Israel and Judah developed. So the first thing I want to say that uh, demographically, demographically there's, a, uh, there's a real revolution. Uh, I think you may see it uh, here, it's not, uh, it's not clear enough, but in all the mountainous regions of Israel, the Galilee, the central hill country, where previously, as I told you in the late Bronze Age, there was hardly any settlement, these areas just fill up what you, can, what you see on the map is really only part of the picture, because the dots on the map are only sites that have been excavated. But beyond these sites, we know hundreds of sites that are known only through surveys, uh, that sites that have not been excavated. But the picture everywhere is the same. Suddenly, there are hundreds, literally, a hundred, hundreds of new settlements most of them are very small villages even hamlets or single uh, uh, or sometimes even single buildings uh, no, uh, uh, no cities no urban centers but small settlements just crowding the Galilee the central uh, hill country and even if you can see here the Northern Negev the arid uh, uh, uh... part uh, of of Israel is just filled with uh, new uh, uh, settlements. You know uh, on the face of it, this really matches the biblical description. Suddenly, we don't really know what suddenly is. It's suddenly with a scope of two hundred years. We cannot be more uh, specific than that. Because they are, as I said, they are very small and very poor, and you know, the poorer the material culture is, uh, it is it's more difficult to date. So somewhere in the 12th and 11th century BC, so this is suddenly those areas uh, fill up. Uh, as I said, the sites are small, but they are. From the beginning, from the moment they are established, they exhibit a very uniform architecture, what we, uh, what we call free room houses. You see uh, house, let's, let's take this one as an example. You see it has three spaces. The uh, uh, columns that you already know are uh, domin- uh, dominant in these houses. This is the archi- architectural type that eventually will become the uh, architectural type typifying both Israel and Judah. There's a strong architectural connection between uh, those sites and eventually all those that will, uh, uh, the main sites of Israel and Judah, which will have not the three-room house, but the four-room house, which is conceptually the same, typifying uh, uh, their cities. Other facets of material culture in these sites, however, are purely Canaanite. There's nothing that indicates any external source. The pottery, you'll have to believe me, is typically Canaanite. Uh, but here and there, there's, there are some uh, 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 special features uh for instance they avoid the use of decorated pottery decorated pottery was very uh popular among the Canaanites. this is something you don't find in these uh centers people have uh, uh been relying on the fact that these uh in all these sites pork is not consumed i'm less impressed because uh pork was also uh, never uh, consumed in, in earnest in in Canaanite sites, you know, pork does not uh, uh, usually. They are just not adjusted to the Mediterranean climate, so basically pork is not part of the Mediterranean diet. So this is less uh, 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 less uh, impressive, and this is what we know about these sites: that they are small, that the architecture is related to what will happen next from the ninth century and on, Uh, but the the material culture is completely uh, uh, Canaan. And this is the way apparently we should uh, uh, imagine all those sites uh, in the Hill Country in that period. A new discovery, again new, uh, over the last decade was made by the late Adam Zartal from my university. Uh, in several places in the Jordan Valley, just to remind you where the Jordan Valley uh, uh, is, he found this cluster of sites, you can see this one here in the aerial photograph, but we'll see the better one is here, uh, uh, of sites that he called the uh, uh, footprint uh, enclosures. and. He found all sorts of symbolic connotation to the footprint shape. I don't agree with his interpretation, so I will not delve into it. But the the fact is that there are enclosures. There are no, not settlement. They seem like ritual enclosures. They are... On the east, as you can, and let us be reminded again, on the eastern uh, margins of uh, 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 along the Jordan Valley. And they date to the very early Iron Age, to the 12th or the 11th century. So Adam Zartal uh, um, interpreted as sites belonging to the Israelites entering uh, Canaan from the east. You know, it's an interpretation, but uh, definitely, they definitely look like some ritual uh, site. If you can see here, there were apparently people were apparently able to walk. You see, there's this double wall just encircling this site, which really looks like a path where people could actually walk. Uh, there are um, there are enclo- there and smaller enclosures within these sites that are really strange. People are now trying to publish them. They date to the right, correct big period. And supposedly, they belong to this, uh, uh, they, or let's say they may belong to an, uh, uh, a population entering uh, Canaan from uh, the east. Um, I would like to sum up uh... uh... the situation in this uh... F- uh territories that will become the uh, main the core areas of israel and judah there's definitely a new from the twelfth into the eleventh century there's definitely a new wave of settlement the main question is where are all these people uh... coming from are they really coming from outside from egypt and i think th- Everyone will uh, uh, agree that it's a possibility, but there's no archaeological evidence to support it. And I think most of, most of the archaeologists in Israel will today agree that most of, this, most of this population is actually the local, the Canaanite population that, if you remember, in the late Bronze Age, actually was uh, vanished from the archaeological radar. Uh, all this uh, semi nomadic settlement, which now, be, uh, uh, because of circum circumstances that we're not really sure, uh, not not actually sure which uh, uh, which uh, circumstances exactly, but possibly the withdrawal of the uh... Egyptians from the region, possibly other regions, not don't have the time for this today, are actually starting to resettle. In areas that were abandoned from centuries. So this is the debate today. Uh, uh, where uh, were they coming from? If they're coming from anywhere. And the second related question is: are they actually coming to this region or settling in this region as a well-defined and unified entity, the Israelites, or uh, something that I will get back to, does the Israelite identity uh, form in situ? Uh, and again, this is, going, this is a topic I will return to after we see what happens elsewhere in uh, Canaanite. So meanwhile, in Philistia, in the area, as you can see, uh, that is uh, roughly south of Tel Aviv, the coast of area, the coastal area from Tel Aviv, from the Alcon River, and southward a, is a totally different story. In this region, first of all, as opposed to the hill country, we have some substantial urban centers. The most impressive one is Tel uh, mikne uh, in the, uh, I need my glasses for this, just a second, Tel uh, mikne which is here identified with Bibli- with no doubt with biblical e- Ekron uh, but actually we know well all the major sites the bible mentions as the major biblical sites so we have Ashkelon the coastal site the only coastal site by, by the way so if pe- uh, uh, people usually associate the Philistines with maritime activities but actually from all among other sites the only one that is really coastal which is ashkelon ashdod ah uh, yeah it's drawn on the coast but is not really on the coast gaza which we know know nothing about archaeology uh gat and ekron are the five uh cities of the philistines that are mentioned in the bible they're all excavated we know their uh, um material culture well uh, only, as I said, only is a really imposing uh, urban sites. All the other ones uh, continue Bronze Age sites. They're not very big. Uh, some of them are actually smaller than their uh, 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 canine predecessors. So uh, they are urban centers, but not very uh, uh, impressive. What is impressive? is that there's a wide range of media that show that the, the people living in those sites have uh, exhibit foreign traditions in their material culture. The most, uh, the most conspicuous uh, foreign traditions are exhibited in the pottery. First of all, you see decorated pottery that you didn't see in the hill country sides. Uh, tradition, traditions in pottery decoration, uh, decorating are either uh, Greek, Mycenaean or Cypriot. Other artifacts like this special <coughs> sort of dagger are uh, Cypriot undoubtedly. We found in Cyprus you can find these sorts of daggers in the hundreds. Uh, they're cult uh, objects. For instance, this a uh, figurine, that we, we called her because she was the first to, first to discover, first of we discovered in Ashdod. There are many like her but she's the only complete one so that's the one we always uh, show. As you can see, uh, she, it's a, some sort of conceptualization of a woman combined uh, with a chair. Uh, this is definitely a Mycenaean f- uh, 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 feature where women on chair goddesses maybe on chair uh, and sometimes actually combined, really combined with the chair. This is uh, undoubtedly the conceptual background for these Philistine uh, uh, figurines. Daily life uh, installations and objects, like those basins and these are the examples from Philistine sides, you can see the counterparts in, uh, uh, in the Aegean area, in, My, in the Mycenaean. Actually, we have some counterparts in Cyprus too. It's Cyprus, it's the, the background for all the traditions we find in Philistia are mostly Cypriot and Greek uh, uh, Mycenaean. However, the picture is not that simple because uh, several of the Philistine sites actually continue the Bronze Age sites on which they were constructed. There are no, this D-Day scenario of people arriving from the West and conquering and destroying uh, the site doesn't really happen other than the one site that I showed you, Tel Neh it doesn't happen in the other, in the other site. And although you can wh- wherever you touch, you feel the uh, uh, you feel and see uh, the Aegean and Cypriot uh, uh, traditions, even in really the very, the very basics of life, like for instance, in uh, uh, weights used for weaving, where in the same households. You can see the Canaanite the weights in Canaanite tradition, those donut-shaped ones and the spool-shaped ones, which are Aegean or separate, we do not really know. Cooking pots, again, in the same household, you have the Canaanite, the wider types, Canaanite uh, cooking pots, and the Aegean or separate uh, uh, cooking pots. So you can see foreign and uh, Canaanite traditions in the same household, although in other respects, for instance, the consumption uh, of uh, pork, in the uh, uh, in the Philistine uh, sites, is so high that these are rates that you know no one has seen in Canaan since the fifth millennium BC, and no one will see again till the Crusaders arrive uh, in the country. We actually know today by DNA uh, studies that uh, this is apparently the per- period where European pig DNA enters uh, uh, enters the levant and actually blends with the local uh, wild boar DNA so it's not only as if they're actually bringing uh, pigs with them uh, so uh, again the picture is less uh, 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 less dramatic as we would like uh, as we were used to uh, uh, picture it there's unequivocal evidence for people arriving from (coughs) Cyprus and the Aegean and probably other regions around uh, the Mediterranean, Uh, but there's no violent uh, conquest and the uh, settlement of those uh, foreign elements is again more peaceful, probably a very lengthy uh, uh, period. And again, they do not come, it seems so, and they do not come as a consolidated entity. It's not the Philistines arriving, because the men, when they arrived, they were not yet Philistines. They were Mycenaeans from this city and Mycenaeans from, uh, from another city. They were Cypriots. They were people from all over the Mediterranean. And as I will try to argue, Philistine identity is something that was forged in situ. Part of this identity is the local, is the local population because again you see the different traditions in the same households. Uh, and now I'll come to my favorite. Uh, uh, how am I with time? Ah, my. Yeah, I knew it. My uh, watch just stopped. I need the time from someone, someone with a watch. 810. Ah, okay, so I should be finishing. Okay, so let me just say about, uh, this is my favorite re- uh, region, I cannot uh, 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 skip it. Uh, on the north northern part of Israel, the Carmel Coast, you see Dor, that's the site I've, I'm excavating. Again, the picture is totally different. I was talking about Philistines from Tel Aviv, from the Yarkon River to the south, now I'm talking from the uh, uh, about the region north of the Alcon River. This is Tel Dor, the major uh, site in this area. And we claim today that Dor is the main city where you can see the uh, consolidation, the early steps of the culture that we call Phoenician. We call them Phoenician; They didn't call themselves Phoenicians. This was a term uh, first coined by Greeks in the 8th century, so these people didn't know that someone will ever call them Phoenicians, but this is what scholarship calls the Phoenician culture, and is usually uh, located only in Lebanon. We have, in Lebanon, we have proved in recent years that uh, uh, mainly because the main uh, uh, centers in Lebanon are impo- not impossible, but very difficult to excavate because the, the overburden of medieval and modern cities on, most of the um, lebanese sites door that is free luckily free of later constructions is the site where you can uh, uh study uh the beginnings of my uh, of Phoenician period i will skip a few sa- slides about door it's today the main site around the entire mediterranean mediterranean uh, in which in the spirit we're discussing between the uh, 13th and 9th century, you can see imposing architecture, really monumental architecture. And at two the main uh, material culture is Canaanite. Um, just as an example, uh, the main types of houses we have are what we call Canaanite courtyards, houses. You can see why the courtyard is in the middle, this is the main feature of the house. So again, the basic matrix is uh, uh, Canaanite. And I will just skip uh, uh, some of the slides. I'll give you maybe the bottom line. The bottom line of what's happening at door is that this is the only region where in this dark age, the 1200 to 900, we can see ample evidence of overseas trade, which didn't happen in the hill country, but didn't happen even in the Philistine coastal sites. So just to uh, uh, a few uh, examples, extensive trade with Egypt, this this is uh, Egyptian draws, I'm skipping that. Extensive uh, uh, context with uh, Cyprus, was material coming from Cyprus and shipped from Dor to Cyprus. We know it. This was defined forever by, by everyone as Phoenician material. And when people said Phoenician, they meant southern Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon. But we analyzed the composition of the, uh, those vessels in Cyprus and found that they are Dor made. So this again enforces our conviction that Dor is in the, uh, example, maybe the example of early Phoenician culture. There is also the first uh, uh, site in the Levant that consumes silver from far away destinations in the Mediterranean, uh, from Sardinia. Uh, silver from uh, Sardinia uh, is also present in other uh, sites uh, in the vicinity, and this exact same area, you can see the area of Dor and the Carmel is also the first, uh, uh, the place, the small site of Enchofez that doesn't exist anymore. It was built built over, produced the first silver that is known in the we- in the East from Iberia. So the uh, the Carmel coast today. I'm going to skip the other uh, the other, uh, you know maybe. Uh, except this uh, slide uh, uh the same area produced the first evidence in tho- those miserably looking flasks the first evidence for spices arriving from the far east cinnamon uh cinnamon certainly uh nutmeg we're not so sure so let's stay with cinnamon so again the bottom line of what I wanted to s- I want to say that this uh region of the Carmel Coast, let me skip those slides, is the main region where after the Late Bronze Age collapse, overseas trade uh, is prospering again. The reasons, I can enumerate in another lecture. The only thing I would still want to say about Do, when you think about who were these people who are generating all this international commerce, other than the basic Canaanite uh, substratum, there are ample evidence of uh, people arriving from Cyprus because part of the material culture of Do, for instance, those large uh, uh, jars, pithoi, we call them, are uh, uh, produced in separate uh, tradition, this is how they look and do. This is how they look in Cyprus. You see with this wavy band if you 've been to Cyprus, wherever you visit in Cyprus they' so so numerous in Cyprus and they 're so big that they don 't have place to store them so in the airport or in every public edifice you 'll find this uh, this for instance is the as you can see a picture from Larnaca uh, airport and other uh, um, other aspects of those material culture uh, exhibit a very strong separate substratum. But it's different than it is. It looks totally different. It's also separate, but it looks totally different than what we witness in Philistia. So let me skip to, th- oh, maybe one thing, one other thing that I cannot forgo is today another Phoenician speciality, the purple dye industry Which everyone forever has been calling, you know, the purple has been, uh, for those of you who do not know, the uh, purple dye uh, uh, is produced from various species of the murex shell. Uh, Forever, scholarship has associated the purple dye with, again, Lebanon. Mainly with Tyre, in, in, from in Rome, in, uh, Greek and Latin, and modern sources, it's always called Tyrian purple. And Greek had the, had the legend of how the purple uh, was discovered, which was repeated in le, in literature and in art, as you can see. De facto, the only region where, to date, there's uh, ample evidence of purple dye production in the early Iron Age, is the Carmel Coast. Both at Dor, these are examples uh, from Dor, they've all been tested chemically and they are bona fide uh, purple, but mainly in in another site, I'm not excavating it, it was excavated in the 70s, but we're now publishing it, a small site in Haifa called Chikmona. As you can see, it's a very small mound, we now know, after we started to uh, process, the finds that the whole site is actually a factory for, per, for uh, extracting the dye from the cell, for the shell for spinning and weaving and dyeing the, te- uh, the textile, and this is another uh, site we're uh, uh, excavating now. So the Carmel region is uh, a core area what. of of what we should be calling the early Phoenician culture. culture. Lebanon is also part of it. But Lebanon, as you can see, is less known because of the uh, modern construction on the major sites. So to conclude, uh, in the 12th to 11th centuries, after the Bronze Age collapse, and especially after the withdrawal of the Egyptians, the southern Levant is in social and demographic havoc havoc, especially in the south, close to Egypt, where the disappearance of the Egyptians is particularly felt. This enables the relatively peaceful infiltration of newcomers fleeing the LB collapse, the Late Bronze Age collapse. Uh, In the core mountainous area of the future kingdoms of Israel and Judah, Uh, populations are largely of Canaanite uh, descent. Even in the other areas, in the coastal areas, no large scale and violent uh, uh, population influxes are in evident, but in the regions we now call Philistia, let's say south of Tel Aviv, newcomers, many from Cyprus and the Aegean, mingled with the locals, achieving high status because of the social chaos and formed a new identity. These are the Philistines. Cypriot newcomers also reached the more northerly coast of modern Israel and coastal Lebanon, certainly, but the material manifestations of these Cypriots and the societies they were absorbed into, these also should not be forgotten, is entirely different than in Philistia. Today we call them Phoenicians, They are, again, for reasons, there's no time to explain everything, these were the main sailors and traders of the area. And by the way, only after Dor and the entire Carmel Coast is annexed by the Israelite kingdoms, and Dor, uh, by and large, loses its maritime uh, importance, this is the minute when the uh, kingdoms of Tyre and Sidon gain, gain supremacy because the competition is gone. So Israelites, Philistines, Phoenicians are all genetically mostly Canaanite in ancestry. Ethnogenesis, the formations of new identity groups, occurs in situ. New separate identities emerge within Canaan in opposition to each other, as we know. This is also a feature of of our society, dictated by geographical and demographic setting economy, extent of foreign interaction, and yes, also by external population arriving after the Bronze Age collapse. Construction of identities occurs in tandem and is interdependent. Thank you.